This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Welcome to the Center for Sports Studies podcast. My name is Brandon Podgorski, Professor of Sport Management at Trine University, and I want to welcome you to this week's podcast. On today's podcast, junior sport and recreation major Nikki Maroney joins me to interview leadership consultant and author John Yeager. We discuss his background in coaching and how his leadership philosophies have made him a sought-after speaker and five-time author. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so I guess first, start with your background, your education, and kind of how you got into the role that you're in currently. Well, well Nikki, basically, I, I grew up in Framingham, Massachusetts, which is around uh, 20 miles uh, west of Boston, and um, kind of grew up in, uh, in the suburban uh, area and uh, started playing sports probably when I was 11 or 12. That, that's a little late by today's standards. And then eventually uh, ended up playing uh, high school lacrosse, which I ended up playing in college, and then uh, club ball, then then professional for a while, in what was then called the major indoor lacrosse league. I, I if I can tell a quick story about two different things that kind of defined why I do what I do now, probably was when I was 11 years old, and my father uh, asked me to, uh, you know, asked if I wanted to be in a road race in. Uh, in, in Framingham and uh, it was a July 4th road race and I was really excited about it and I had done some running. It was a three mile race. I had never run that much in my life. And so we got to the starting blocks um, and uh, everybody else was like 20 years old or over. And I was this little 11 year old skinny kid and I could feel all my, my hands go cold and clammy, you know, total fear of failure. You know, this is not good here. But I looked over at my father and he just smiled at me. And that smile said everything. That smile really told me that, hey, it's okay whether you go with it or you don't go with it. So I went with it. The starter's gun went off. I took off. I came in dead last. The parade almost caught up to me. And then eventually, uh, you know, I, I realized out of that, it was my father's, what he didn't say was all of support of really, you know, hope and confidence and resilience and optimism. And I've really carried that with me as an athlete, but and more so as a coach and when, when I work with teams. My, my, my other story happened uh, when um, I was a senior in college, at least eligibility wise. Um, Anyways, uh, and uh, that was a kind of a sore subject with my parents back then. But picture me with brown hair down to my shoulders, parted in the middle, headband, doing the peace sign. And that was me. And when I was playing at Boston State College, which is now UMass Boston, we were playing in our first game of the season against, uh, against Bowdoin College. And, and Boston State is around three miles away from our home field, which was in Brighton, Massachusetts. It was a town field that abutted, was adjacent to Harvard athletic fields. So, so Harvard's pristine athletic fields and our field was dirt, a little glass on it, broken glass and some grass. And that was it. So we got there. I got in the game, was really excited about it. I was a lacrosse goalie. So uh, some people call us courageous. Some people call us stupid. But anyways, I got out there and I played absolutely awful, absolutely awful to the point where I wish the coach could have taken me out. Well, 
And basically my backup goalies weren't ready for prime time. So he, I stayed in there. So I, you know, went back to the dorms afterwards and actually grieved for a couple of days because that was my identity at that time. And for so many athletes around that age or, or at any different age that becomes so much a part of you. Uh, but there was redemption on Thursday. My, my hope was because we were playing Middlebury College from Vermont. They were coming down to Smithfield. We got out there. And so we're out there. We're a bunch of hippies out there. And and uh, the, the guys from uh, Middlebury are all clean cut, especially their head coach was a huge guy who had a high and tight haircut. And he was really, uh, you know, you know, barking out instructions. And so um, one of our guys on our team, Ronnie and Jimmy, he shaved half his beard off before the game to pump us up. Now, I'm not sure what that was about, okay, back then. But anyways, we get out there and the first shot of the game goes in on me. And so I said, it's okay, I'm okay. Second shot goes through my legs. Then the drunken monkey in the back of my head started thinking, oh no, this is, this is not good. You know, I, I'm an imposter. I really do suck. This is no good. And so uh, fortunately, uh, the, uh, the, the other team, Middlebury got the ball again. They came in and I made a great save at that time. You know, probably didn't expect to do it. Passed the ball down, cleared the ball down. We scored the goal. We scored the next goal. We scored the next four goals after that. We win the game six to two. The ball was like a beach ball. And so I was in what we'd call today the zone. But that's not why I tell you the story. The, the really the reason that really influenced me in my coaching and working with teams happened in the second period when the coach of the other team, Rob Pfeiffer, called for a timeout. And he said, timeout, Middlebury. And Middlebury players went dutifully to their bench or into my bench, our bench. And Ron, remember Ronnie with half a beard? He runs to the Middlebury bench. So there's definitely something wrong with Ronnie. He goes through the, the crowd in the huddle and these Middlebury guys don't know what to make of it. Ronnie jumps on the coach's back of the other team. Okay. And, uh, and the coach turns around, Ronnie takes off his helmet, half a beard. They look up at each other, they smile, and then they both begin to tear up and cry and hug each other. Say, so what's going on here? Well, the backstory, when Ronnie heard Pfeiffer's voice call timeout, the last time he heard that tone, that inflection of that voice was six years before in the jungles of Vietnam because Pfeiffer was his platoon commander and everything stood still. To this day, I'm friends with guys on the other team because of that moment. And that was one of the greatest you know, sports moments I've ever had in my life. Basically, it was a collaboration of both teams working together. You know, just, you know, I think of that and in the, uh, you know, uh, the, the UCLA and uh, Gonzaga uh, players hugging each other after the semifinal game in the final four because of what they went for in the collaborative effort. So I've always kind of inculcated that and stayed with that in all the work that I've done, you know, as a, um, in my work in leading teams and in leading coaches. So that's a little bit about my background. Do you have a college degree? Where did you go to college and kind of how your career has evolved as well? I went to, as I said, Boston State College, which is now UMass Boston, um, got a master's from Worcester State a couple of years after that in health education, kind of health behavior. Then eventually I, I earned my doctorate at um, EDD at Boston University. Um, and I got a chance to work with teams at Boston University and Northeastern University also in Boston that time. 
Uh, the degree that really resonated most with me is back in 2005, 2006, I was in the um, inaugural uh, class for applied positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. And that was really, really powerful. And, you know, positive psychology is about what's not what the problem is and how do you fix it? What's already good in all of us? And how do we bring that out? And it has so many uh, connections and bearings to sports psychology today. So those are, that's my kind of education. I, I worked in the Framingham schools in Massachusetts for a, for a while, eventually um, worked at, at Boston University. And then in, in, in 2000, came out to Indiana uh, in the cornfields of Indiana, around two hours. And Nikki, Nikki knows this, two hours southeast of uh, Chicago, probably in the middle of nowhere, to the Culver Academies, uh, which is a... Uh, uh, a uh, rigorous uh, independent boarding school. And I, I coached lacrosse for a while there, but I also worked in teaching health behavior and I was a wellness educator there and also our director for the Center for Character Excellence. All at the same time, I've really enjoyed working and going out working with other teams. And uh, you know, a lot. I still have a lot of the teams that I work with are in New England uh, just because I had my roots there, but also some, some teams in, in the Midwest. I want to go back to that story you were talking about with the, the particular lacrosse game where it started to come together for you as a goalie. How does that experience, how's that shaped how you deal with teams now as far as getting them kind of, you know, maybe past that, oh shoot, it's happening again type of moment to, okay, I've got to collect myself and go back out and perform. I mean, it means everything. It, it just, it, 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 the, the prime mover behind that uh, is, is, is helping athletes who have this, you know, fear of screwing up and fear of failure, which is so common out there, is to what are the strategies that one can use for being in the present moment. I'm, I'm on a podcast tomorrow and uh, the person who's a host is a golfer. So I know we'll be talking about the, the masters, you know, and, 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 and on, uh, when I was watching some of the, 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 uh, the previews of the masters today, they say, well, wait till tomorrow when it really starts, you know, the practice rounds don't really count. And that way they put the pin placement tomorrow and how can you be there? And how do you, how can you best deal with being mindful and being in the present moment and having a strategy, be able to visualize yourself performing well, because in many ways we have good movies, bad movies, and horror movies in our mind from our sports experiences. And it's what we can call upon and so neuropsychologically, if we're calling upon something that went well, or we can imagine something going well, there's a greater chance that our body will follow with that. So I use this, you know, I use this all the time when I, when I work with uh, athletes and with coaches too. How much do you think sports psychology or just kind of learning things like, you know, good leadership, team cohesion, in, in all these great attributes that, that we talk about in sport psychology, how big of a difference do you think it makes on a team? Is it something, you know, cause we kind of hear it, you know, in the culture, um, is it something that can take like a six win team to a 20 win team? Um, or is it something that, you know, Hey, it's going to do a better job of kind of bringing a team together and get you a little bit more prepared to perform at, at your peak. I think level. it has a little to do with, with both. I mean, it, it, it always, I remember working with one basketball team who had, you know, it was at, at Culver who they had uh, probably eight years ago, they had won their, uh, they had come to the state semifinals and lost that. And then all but one player graduated. 
And then they went 0-23 the next season. And they still had the same frame of going out there every day. They just didn't have the talent. So, of course, you need to have the talent. Um, but I think, I think by having a level of what do I call individual and collective psychological capital within the team uh, is really important. What I mean by that is psychological capital is different than human capital, which are the knowledge and the skills that the players and the coach have. And there's social capital out there, and it's the ability, the capacity to relate to each other. But psychological capital individually is about hope, confidence, resilience, and optimism. And then if, if individuals can work on that, they can eventually work on that and doing that collectively and really kind of, you know, help and work in putting together the jigsaw puzzle there. And I think it's incumbent upon the responsibilities and the opportunities of the coaches, okay, who, who, who drive the bus there to make sure that's coming out in the athletes there. And they, you know, and so therefore I think it can take teams you know, take teams, you know, maybe not from six wins to 20 wins, but it can really help and enhance, you know, the, the quality of life there in the joy and satisfaction and not looking over your shoulder so that it could maybe allow for athletes to be more in the present moment so that they can perform better in a game and then basically, you know, get, get, get the W that comes out of it there. Well, I think it's an important point because we have a lot of students here. Um, we're, we're a big athletic school. Almost about half of our students are athletes. And we've got a number of them who want to go into coaching. And I think they're really good with the technical skills. You know, they, they understand how to draw up an offense against a 2-3 defense in, in basketball, right? They're really good at that. Um, but if coaches are responsible for the ones kind of cultivating that, that culture and, and helping athletes perform their best, not just physically, but kind of mentally as well, you know, are we doing enough as, as higher ed institutions or even just in sports to prepare coaches for that? Because I know when I coached, uh, I coached college basketball for a number of years, I had no clue. And it wasn't until I went through grad school that I started understanding, oh my gosh, you were the worst coach in the history of basketball as I start learning this stuff. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think it's incumbent upon coaches if they want to be as effective as possible and if they want to make as much of a difference as possible in athletes in, in, in the teams. As, um, you know, working with Kevin Terrell, who's the... Um, Harvard men's swimming and diving coach, they've, they've actually propelled themselves to the top of the Ivies the last four or five years. Of course, they didn't have a season this past year with COVID, but also to get up to high as ranked as number 12 in the country nationally. But he also believes that he wants his athletes to leave with a set of life skills to lead. And that's that th those are not diametrically opposed. Those are, it's a dynamic polarity or a dynamic balance with that. And part of that is knowing how to cultivate connections with the athletes in ways that you build trust. And I'm talking about vulnerability trust where coaches are okay to say, hey, I screwed up here, okay? So it allows for the athlete to be more comfortable and not have that fear of failure as much. Because some of that fear of failure usually starts way back and it's never addressed. You know, it's never addressed at home, it's never addressed on the athletic field, and you just say you got to live with it. And and um, and I don't think you have to. And I think there there's enough information out there for coaches who really are lifelong learners, okay, to be able to go out there and cultivate those connections 
you know, be able to show empathy, but also rational compassion. And rational compassion is about, you know, holding athletes accountable for some, you know, different things, but at the same time, caring about them, no matter what, unconditionally. And the third is mattering, you know, mattering, uh, that, that, that every athlete tends to matter. You know, um, the, uh, Catherine DiLorenzo, who's a women's field hockey coach at, um, Middlebury College in Vermont, she talks about a scope of contribution that all of her athletes know each other and they know themselves. And it's really important for that. And they know their scope of contribution. What do they bring to the table? What do they bring to the field every day? Even the athlete who doesn't get a lot of playing time, that is still really, really important that, that they do have a scope of contribution. Uh, that they have there. So I think coaches can be really good at that and to helping them and to helping athletes be more resilient, especially if athletes respond in different ways, you know, whether they choke or not and what emotions come out with them, because the tendency is emotions will drive first when, when some of the behavior is off on the field and the athlete, you know, feels that they screwed up. But if, if a coach can begin to see this and understand the player's story, what is it about this athlete? What is it about their story that they can understand so they can help the athlete understand why the, why, what the belief system is behind this, you know, and, and, and basically that's all about is changing belief systems. I, I, I think of the old, and I'm, I'm dating myself, the old journey song, don't stop believing. Okay. Is, is, and I, it's a double negative, but the idea of belief and one of those beliefs. So we're, uh, so an athlete feels that they, they're not competent and they, uh, they have fear and anxiety because of that, or they don't have a coping plan. How can coaches help and support the athlete with that? That's hard to do though. If you're working with 20 to 25, you know, individual, you know, people out there on your team, but the more that coaches can see that, the more they can develop that vulnerability trust and they can help that athlete work through that a little bit more. And Nikki, I want you to feel free. Please jump in at any time. I just had a follow-up question to that because what you're saying, I think it kind of resonates not just in sport, but in any realm of leadership and in business, nonprofit, whatever it would be. So what would be a good strategy for a leader to kind of be intentional and, and develop some of those individual relationships with, with players or um, employees or, or any other followers? Sure. In, in my book, The Coaching Zone, uh, some people have commented that it's, this is not just about sports, it's about leadership overall. And I've come to realize that, that it does unintentionally. Um, I think one of the first things, and I talk about this in the book, is that uh, coaches and leaders need to have a, a level of self-awareness. I take the work of uh, Daniel Goleman, who is the emotional intelligence guru, and he talks about the focus leader, which has a focus on self, a focus on others, and a focus on the wider world. So I look at coaches focusing on themselves to a degree where they understand their own self-management, their own self-regulation, self-control. Um, what are their stories? You know, what are the stories that come to life for them? What are their strengths? What are their shortcomings? Okay, and how do you put that together? And what is the purpose? that the coach has when they work with individual athletes in the team. You know, is it, it's what, what do I want for my athletes? What do I want from my athletes? And then really understanding too is why do I coach in the first place? I think that helps to ground the coach more to allow them to go to the next piece, which is leading and empowering athletes. 
And one of the, you know, there's kind of a hitting sweet spot between providing direction, but also empowering them. So if you're, in, you're providing too much direction, you're micromanaging. If you're, if you're, if you're uh, providing too much empowerment, everything's chaos there. So it's hitting that sweet spot of a coach knowing when to, 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 to go and when to slow with direction in that. Okay. And I think that's really, really important uh, to see. And then the third piece in there is basically coaches help to orchestrate or choreograph the team dance. And the team dance is literally uh, the rhythm and flows of the team. And that changes from day to day, from game to game, from season to season. And to understand that and understand the role that the players have on the field, their scope of contribution that, that I talked about before. And this is critical, you know, for leaders too. Um, there's a book out called There's No I in Team uh, that I, 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 I cited the, the, the author to that uh, in the book a little bit because so many people use that cliche. Well, there, I mean, there is an I in team. That was the title of the book. There are people who say there's no I in team. Well, there is the individual. There's always an individual. Okay, but but the thing is, well, what is it about the individual that we can value? What is it about the team that we value? And how do we hit the sweet spot between both of those areas? You know, focusing on, you know, uh, building the, the best individual who then can become the best part of the jigsaw puzzle or the team, which also leads into the, the idea of, of culture and 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 being able to understand the inst institutional memory of the organization you know what what is it about the culture of this organization or this team that that goes and then constantly if teams stay the same and they don't change then they get stale whether it's business school education or athletic and so how can you actually hit the sweet spot with transformation what are the things that we need to do to to move on and to grow into things like that so i tend to look at uh, not look at either or situations. I tend to look at both and situations for coaches. And I find that the most effective coaches are those that are able to, to, as I say, hit the sweet spot in balancing those healthy tensions or polarities. Nikki, do you have uh, any more questions? Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your book. Uh, just give us an overview of it and maybe what your favorite part of the book is. Well, I, you know, in some ways I talked a little bit about the overview and the, you know, the three different pieces. I'm really excited. Here's, here's, here's a copy of the book right, right here. And, and I'm going to give a shameless plug. It's the, the actual um, uh, official launch date is tomorrow. <laughs> okay. And I've got a lot, a lot of stuff up on social media. I've been doing a lot of podcasts like, like this. And uh, you can buy the book tomorrow on Kindle for $1.99. Okay, and what you do is you get a you get a also a, a bonus gift, which is a 47, 47 exercises for coaches and athletes in the book that you can actually download uh, as the bonus gift and, and print out to use as you go along there. I really, in my forty five years of coaching and also playing sports, I I, I I really found some interesting things when I interviewed around fifty or so coaches at all different levels, youth, high school, college, club, and professional. And then also um, with some several sports psychologists, they all came up with some of the similar un understandings about being effective, you know, and, 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 and it was about, you know, uh, understanding themselves very well. 
okay, and, and becoming lifelong learners so that they were most available to be out there with the, with the athletes, you know, and, you know, just as a story that I told earlier against, you know, Middlebury, you know, I just, you know, that knowing that our stories really help to define how we operate at times, I think is very, very important. And, you know, that, that's that first part of the book, you know, and the second part of the book talks about the leading and the empowering. And it also, I, I, I talk a lot in there about, about athletes and coaches being in the present moment. Okay. I know mindfulness is a term that's, 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 it's not over. Yeah. It might be overused, but it should be because I think that's one of the sweet spots that that's missing, you know um, you know, with many, many athletes. And I talk a lot about how do you build confidence in athletes, you know, through uh, you know, getting them to look at the things that they've mastered in the past and then how do they, you know, transfer that over to a new skill? And then how do they vicariously learn through role models out there and getting good feedback? You know, that's important. But as, as two psychologists, sports psychologists, Amy Balsell, who was one of my doctoral students at Boston University way back, she's out of the Boston area. And Mitch Green is a sports psychologist out of the Philadelphia area. They talk about this notion of courage over confidence. So sometimes it's really hard to say to an athlete, you need to be confident all the time to do this. Okay, that's there's so many different things going on, okay, uh, that are getting in our heads. To wrap right around the confidence is hard to do. But then what you do is you go to the other C, which is courage. And courage is all about the ability to know that you have fear going on, but you're going to suck it up and say, okay, I'm going to move forward anyways. I've done, I've done the body of evidence of work to be a good athlete. Okay. You know, I've done that work there. Okay. And I'm, I'm taking good care of myself. I've done this before. There's no reason I cannot do this again. And I go out there and I think coaches can really, who really can see if a, an athlete doesn't have the confidence at that time that they can help to be courageous and have that, have the coaches saying, Hey, just like my father was, I'm here for you. Okay, let's go. I think you can do it. You know, let's go for it. And then when athletes uh, succeed at that, the, the feeling is unbelievable. You know, it's just like, you know, it's, it's, it, it's like, you know, in many ways, sports is, you know, trying to go out there and get a, a sense of feeling complete, you know, when you're out there. And, and when that happens, the feeling is amazing. But sometimes it takes that courage to be able to go out there to, to make that happen. So, you know, I, I talk, and that's one of the things I learned from, from several of the different sports psychologists, you know, that, that I talked about in there. And of course, the third part was about uh, talking about, about the team and, and, and that teams change all the time. And I was really fascinated about pep talks and how coaches give pep talks and, uh, and, and you know, what are, what are the really important components of a, uh, of, of a pep talk that, you know, they have to be, you know, in many ways, uh, direction giving, okay, they have to be meaningful, and they have to bring some level of empathy in there. And I was never as a coach, I was never a, uh, uh, you know, uh, a blustery, go out there and win it for the Gipper type of rah-rah guy. But occasionally I'd get amped up with that. But I remember uh, when I was coaching lacrosse at, at, uh, at, at, at Culver, you know, um, back in the early 2000s, and I, I demoted myself after 2004, we brought another coach in and the team got really, really good. 
I'm not sure what that says about me. But anyways, uh, in 2003, we're playing in the state semifinals down in Indianapolis, and uh, and we're losing six to nothing at halftime. And it wasn't it wasn't for a fault of us not playing well. We just couldn't put the ball in the net. Their goalie was coming up big. And we were missing some of our shots too. So, you know, I, I went to the team. I say, I said, this is going to sound, sound cliche, guys. But look, first of all, we're down 6 nothing. We're not, we're not, we're, we're playing okay. We just need to put the ball in the net. Okay. Uh, let's go out there and pretend the game's 0-0. And, you know, a lot of times coaches will say that. And so I said, let's, let's try it out. Let's, let's see if it does. And if we score the first goal of the period, third period, we're up one nothing. Let's see how that goes. So we got back there and I kind of said a quick prayer as we, the face off of the third period. And we did score the first goal within the first minute of the third period. And so we went up one to nothing and, and everybody's, you know, well, that's, that's nice. Then we scored the second and we scored the third. So we're down six, three, but we're thinking we're leading three, nothing. They call a timeout. We got the momentum. Our team is going ballistic. We got it up to six, five. And we ended up losing the game eight, seven, but what a shift. And that was this idea of belief and be able to communicate about the belief and the core values of the team there. And not all those players, some of those players graduated, but we had a similar team the following year when we went to the state finals in Indiana in 2004. And um, we were playing a team that uh, had beat us by 10 goals during the season. And I was being optimistic and thinking we'd probably, I didn't tell the players this, but probably lose by maybe three or four goals. But I just hope we can make a good performance out there. Now, of course, I didn't say this to the players. And their team went down and scored in the first minute of play. And their, uh, the player who scored came in front of our bench and did a dance in front of us. We taunted us. And that's one of the things that, and Nikki knows this from going to Culver, you, you, you don't do that if you're at Culver. And you don't do that to, 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 in the sport. You know, it's, 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 it's not part of the sport. You know, you got to, you know, you, you, the spirit of the game. So I call a timeout and I'm, I'm, I'm a little riveted at this point. And my captain, Jack Parchman comes by and, you know, um, he goes, coach, I got the, we, we have the, we have the timeout. You don't have to come into the cuddle at all. I go, what? Don't worry about it. We got it. Okay. Well, they go out, they, they come on there and they're very animated in the, in the huddle. They come back out and we're leading the game 12 to one at halftime. We ended up winning the state championship, but it was the belief system right there. And finally said, it's, it's not necessarily not in my house. You don't do that to us, but it was the beliefs that, that you know, we, we can actually do this and we want to do it right. And they went out and they did it right. You know, I mean, and I think, is that going to happen all the time? No, no. You know, I mean, can, can teams that are really, really strong not come up short? Of course. And they can have the best sports psych and collective confidence and collective psychological capital going, okay? But the thing is, if they have that and they're working at it, more often than not, they're going to find the joy and satisfaction out there. Um, and that can actually contribute to Ws over time. So, so that's what I, you know, I try to, Nikki, I try to kind of emphasize in the book is, is for coaches, you know, this goes way beyond the X's and O's. I think it goes beyond doing sports psych with the athletes. It's about coaches understanding their own psychology and learning more about how they can make the effort and make the, make the, uh, make application so that they can uh, work with their, their athletes. Bob Quinn, who wrote a great book, he was from the University of Michigan, 
in called the building the bridges you walk on it. He says, when we change ourselves, we, you know, we change how other people see us and how they respond to us. When we change ourselves, we change the world. And that's living in the fundamental state of leadership. And it really is. So the coach's ability to make changes over time, you know, and to be able to really understand their players out there really bodes well. And that's the emphasis that I've, you know, that I put on this book there. And I've just begun to find out more so that it has so many applications to, um, to, to business and to education also in leadership. I think that was the question I wanted to ask when you told the story about your captain. And he said, coach, I got it. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> like in your opinion, then what's the point in, of sport? You know, there seems like there's such a push for um, specialization and professionalism, uh, professionalization, I guess, even at a youth level. But, you know, that story right there with that captain who learned those skills and led that team and got them fired up and came back and won, that's going to carry with him forever on, on how to be a good leader and how to take charge. You know, to me, that's what I think the beauty in sport is. Would you agree? I, I totally would. I totally would. I, I, I saw on, on social media recently a picture of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at seven foot, whatever, and John Wooden, Wooden, Wooden was coaching him at UCLA. Then it showed uh, Jabbar later in when uh, Wooden was in his 80s and holding hands. And, and, and basically where Wooden helped to lead Jabbar, then Jabbar was holding hands and leading along Wooden. And it was just really, really powerful because I think that's what we, you know, to make a difference in somebody else's life and to get them to grow with the life skills. Jack, Jack uh, ended up going to Air Force Academy, was in Air Force Intelligence for a variety of years, went, got his uh, MBA at Chicago Booth, and now he's an investment, investment banker there. And he's on the um, board of directors for the uh, Owls Youth Lacrosse League in Chicago. You know, so that's Jack. You know, Jack had a lot together anyways beforehand, but but allowing that situation to happen that where he took charge and made that happen was was really, really important. And I think that's that that's important to do across the board. Okay, because in many ways, a coach, I am not the main actor in the story. It's the player and the players. Okay, they're the main actors. Okay, I can help be a choreographer or orchestra leader, okay? But the bottom line is they are in the trenches doing the work out there and allowing for them to, to, to make mistakes, to screw up, but also to flourish and to grow and to ask questions of them to how it's going. So, so it becomes their team and their game. So good, I love it. Thanks, thanks John and, and Nikki, well, great job. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to download our next episode on April 30th as we sit down with Trine Exercise Science Capstone students and discuss their COVID-19 research. As always, we'd like to say a special thank you to producer Josh Hornbacher for his work behind the scenes today. This is the Center for Sports Studies podcast broadcasting from the Trine Broadcasting Network. For more information about the Center for Sports Studies, please visit trine.edu. Also be sure to like the Trine Center for Sports Studies on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TrineCSS.
Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.